0: It's the quiet ones who often surprise us. The ones with their nose in a book or their head in the clouds. They're the people who are quietly watching the world, learning how it works and what makes everything tick. People like Elizabeth Smith, born in Huntington, Indiana in 1892. Smith lived all over the country, first in Indiana before moving to Ohio to attend college for a few years. She left school to help her ailing mother in 1913 until transferring to Hillsdale College in Michigan finish her first degree. While in school, Smith discovered a love of language—many of them, in fact. Though she earned her degree in English literature, she also managed to squeeze in German, Latin, and Greek, with a side of poetry. Smith studied works by great English authors, but it was her love of Shakespeare that earned her one of her first jobs out of college. She had gone to visit the Newbury Library in Chicago to see a collection of the Bard's first plays, known as the First Folio. A librarian helping Smith noticed her fascination with the collection, and knew of someone with a Shakespeare-related project who could use her expertise. This man's name was George Fabian, a business owner living in Geneva, Illinois, just outside of the city. Fabian had hired another woman, Elizabeth Wells Gallup, who was hard at work cracking a seemingly impossible puzzle. Had Shakespeare's plays really been written by Sir Francis Bacon instead? Fabian believed the text was rife with cryptographic clues left behind that would reveal Bacon as the true bard of Avon. Smith moved to Fabian's estate and began to work on the project. This also made his company, Riverbank Laboratories, the only place in the country performing this kind of work, which piqued the interest of a United States military about to enter World War I. Riverbank hired more analysts to handle the government's requests. They not only assisted in deciphering coded messages, but also trained military personnel to do the same. And one of those cryptoanalysts was George Friedman, who worked closely with Smith during their time there. The two were inseparable, so much so that their partnership and eventual marriage were key to the facility's success. With her ability to recognize patterns and his cryptography experience, the couple became quite adept at breaking through even the toughest ciphers. Together, they managed to break up Prohibition-era smuggling operations, Chinese drug rings, and put away over 600 criminals. They even unearthed an American spy during World War II. Her name was Velvile Dickinson, and she had been using her antique doll shop to funnel military secrets to the Japanese. But Elizabeth Smith, now Elizabeth Friedman, didn't stop there. Some of her most important work was performed during World War II, She cracked messages from Nazi spies who had been moving into neutral territories, like South America, while also infiltrating the United States. She broke several Nazi enigma codes and dealt with messages from one of the war's most wanted spies, Johannes Siegfried Becker, who went by the nickname Sargo. Sargo was based in South America and had been sending messages to his people in Berlin. His army of dozens of Nazi agents had been collecting everything they could on Allied operations, relaying the information back to Sargo's base in Argentina. He would then encrypt those messages, which numbered in the thousands, before sending them off to Germany. Friedman's efforts helped bring down Sargo's operation, as well as every other Nazi spy ring in South America. Yet, so few people know about Elizabeth's work today, and that was by design. Though her techniques and research helped to form the NSA as we know it, she was practically erased from the history books by FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Friedman had been the one deciphering Nazi communiques and teaching FBI agents how to do it as well. But when the war was over, Hoover made sure the Bureau got all the credit. It wasn't until very much later that Elizabeth and her husband received the honors they so rightly deserved. After the war, they returned to their first love, Shakespeare. One of their final acts of cryptoanalysis occurred in 1955 when they published a book about George Fabian's pet project at Riverbank Laboratories. His Baconian theory, the idea that Sir Francis Bacon had been the true author of all of Shakespeare's plays, was bogus. There were no ciphers hidden in the text after all. But Fabian's plan wasn't a total waste. After all, he brought Elizabeth and William together, and their marriage helped to win two world wars. When you stop and think about it, the variety of communication methods available to us is pretty incredible. I typed this into a document on my computer screen, but now I'm speaking it out loud for you to hear. Take a drive around town and you'll see even more methods as well. Road signs, traffic lights that use color to send instructions, and even basic shapes like lines. Open your mobile device and you can send your friends all manner of memes and avatars and whatever else your heart desires, even if that's just a little cartoon heart. But back in 1963, the options were a little less abundant— And that's the job that Harvey was asked to overcome. But that's okay. He was equipped for the job. After all, Harvey was a graphic designer. He was born in 1921 in the city of Worcester in central Massachusetts. And that's where his parents raised him. And it was clear, even as a kid, that he had a knack for putting basic communication ideas to paper. While most kids in high school might get a job on a lawn crew or in a fast food restaurant, Harvey worked alongside a sign painter learning skills that would be valuable for the rest of his life. It needs to be pointed out that, before computers, designers needed to create a lot of stuff by hand. Painting straight lines or the lettering for a sign above a local business wasn't for the faint of heart. I've personally watched that sort of work being done, and it's nerve-wracking. Before pixels and vectors and exporting PDFs, there were the steady hands and sharp brushes of trained professionals. In college, Harvey studied right there in Worcester, at the Art Museum School, and then after working for other companies after graduating, he eventually started his own business, an advertising agency, in 1959. And four years later, opportunity came knocking. It was another local business, the State Mutual Life Assurance Company, to be exact. They'd recently purchased another insurance company, Guaranteed Mutual, out of Ohio, and had run into some problems. You see, few people really enjoy change, and many people find it downright annoying, and as a result of the merger, everyone under their corporate roof had felt a drop in morale. And that's where Harvey comes in. Desperate to cheer up and boost their company morale, the fine folks at the insurance company hired him to design a single iconic image that could lighten the mood and inject a bit of happiness back into their workday. They offered to pay him for his time, and so Harvey put brush to paper. I'm not going to hide the results from you until the end of this story. After all, that wouldn't make you happy. No, I think it's worth getting it out of the way now. You see, Harvey Ross Ball, sign painter and freelance artist, returned to his client with a yellow circle, upon which he had painted two black ovals and a long, semicircular curve. A smiley face. Now, it could be argued that the icon of a circle containing a smile is probably not even something a person can claim they invented. Most kids, when scribbling out their first stick-figure crayon drawings, usually top those basic bodies with a smiley face. And they do it instinctively. It's pure and simple and almost universal. But Harvey Ball was the first to see its potential as a morale booster and maybe even the first to put those black lines on a yellow background. And his insurance company client was even more pleased with it, They had 100 buttons made with the image on it, and management passed the buttons out to employees whenever they noticed someone was smiling while they worked. And with that, the floodgates burst wide. Because neither Harvey nor his client ever trademarked the image, just about everyone with an ounce of entrepreneurial spirit started to make and sell all manner of merchandise with the smiley face upon it. Posters? Check. T-shirts? Check. Coffee mugs? You bet. And Harvey? Oh, he didn't mind. Honestly, how ironic would it have been if the guy who invented the smiley face took the world to court over the use of such an iconic symbol? No, Harvey just sort of rolled with it. He sold reproductions of his original painting, he did signings at conventions, and even started a charity, the World Smile Foundation. Amazingly, even the paycheck for that original design job was less than ideal, and yet Harvey never complained. After all, his client had promised to pay him for his time, and that's exactly what they did—forty-five dollars for ten minutes worth of work. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.